Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lizzo Wellbeing Show, the podcast that brings you your weekly dose of wellness wisdom that you can trust. And we have been getting more great comments from you on social media. Thank you very much indeed for these. It really does mean a lot to both me and to my entire team. And here's one example, and it relates to a previous episode with Professor Russell Foster. Wow, that was fascinating. We learned so many things about our body's natural circadian rhythms, otherwise known as our body clock. Well, Fab122 has written, quote, Such an interesting listen to this discussion about sleep and much more. Professor Russell Foster has shared some intriguing facts and figures. I will definitely have to read his book this summer. Thanks, Liz, and kiss, kiss. Well, thank you very much, Fab122. Kiss, kiss, back to you. Hope you enjoyed his book, if that was your holiday reading. Thank you for listening to the podcast and, of course, for sharing your feedback, because by doing this, you also can help other people to find us too. Well, on to today's episode and a subject that will be so, so familiar to so many of us, and that is dieting, or rather not dieting, because with the help of our very knowledgeable guest today, we want to debunk some of those confusing and sometimes counterproductive diet myths and talk about how we can all maintain a healthy weight for life without the need for any fad diets. My guest today is one of the UK's leading nutritionists, a Sunday Times best-selling author and a podcast host in her own right. She's Rhiannon Lambert. She's also founded a Harley Street clinic, which specialises in weight management, sport nutrition and eating disorders, amongst other things. And she and her specialist team aim to help people transform their lives, just as we do here at Lizard Wellbeing. So Rhiannon, welcome. Oh, hello, Liz. It's such an honour to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure and congratulations on your wee one. You are the mum of a 10-week-old, <laughs> is that right, as we as we record this? Yeah, I can't believe it. Yes, yeah, so I have um, two boys now in my life, my two-year-old and, yes, 10-weeks-old little oh. Theodore. <laughs> well, congratulations. And I'm Thank sure you. that eating well is sort of never been more forefront of your mind at a time like this. And also during pregnancy, obviously, when you're literally sort of eating to create another human being. 
Oh, I mean, 100%. I mean, my new book coming out, the pregnancy book was inspired by the fact that I just felt that it's such it's actually a difficult time, because depending on what symptoms you have, everybody's pregnancy journey is so unique to them. You know, some people experience severe nausea, some people have a lot of acid reflux or other various symptoms. And the dietary choices we make can really help ease that journey. And just I think it's reassurance, isn't it, that you're getting the nutrients your baby needs, ultimately. I, I think for me, personally, my own journey in nutrition started, in fact, when I was pregnant. And with my first, Lily, she's now 31 so a few few years back now but you know I remember walking around the greengrocers and the supermarkets you know just being really conscious that everything I was putting into my shopping trolley would end up going in to create another life and how could I best do that and that's sort of been a journey that I've been on ever since really which is why it's so special to be able to chat to you especially I think about dieting because it's such a topic that comes back with my listeners time and time again. Oh, yes. I think everybody has been impacted to some degree, which is really sad by diet culture or the diet industry. And of course, the word diet originally, I mean, the origins of it should just mean what we eat. But really, sadly, it's been hijacked, I feel, by money making perhaps fatty diets. I think most people will link the word dieting to these days. And sad psychological outcomes for people because a lot of the time diets are virtually impossible to stick to long term, which means that the minute you come off them um, and resume everyday life, it's where's the next one coming. So everybody seems to have been impacted by them. Mm. What about you then in your own journey with food? What inspired you to become a nutritionist in the first place? Um, Well, for me, it started, I mean, more now, like you say, with your daughter, I'm more interested now than ever before, but it was always a passion. And I used to be a classical singer, so a soprano, that was my original bread and butter. So I never thought I would ever do science, Liz, in a million years, never, ever. Um, I just, (laughs) I loved musicals, I wanted to be on the stage. And I think it was throughout that time. Well, you won Classic FM's Young Musician of the Year, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, um, was very, very, very fortunate to win a competition when I was 17. Yeah, the Classic FM's Young Musician of the Year. And uh, part of that prize was to go and study at the Royal Academy of Music in London. I mean, I don't think I could have ever made it there without winning something so prestigious. And I, I guess the overall outcome, sadly, in terms of my physical health and the food I was putting into my body was the fact that I didn't think I'd make it as a singer if I didn't look a certain way. I mean, the music industry was very different back then. It was all about being a certain size and shape and to sell to sell music, you have to look a certain way. And fad diets just surrounded me and it really got to a place where I just wasn't happy, Liz. I was not nourished. I think looking back, I had a huge amount of disordered eating habits, poor relationship with food. And I did actually go to a doctor. This was one turning point for help. And instead of being offered advice and support, I was just put on antidepressants and said, oh, here you go. When you're, yep. When you're happier, you'll eat more. I was 17 years old. So I think being so young and vulnerable and, you know, I lived in the country and I'd suddenly in this big city of London by myself, signed to labels and working in this industry, it continued 
I was up and down for a few years and eventually I thought, you know what, I want to go and study something. All my friends are at uni or college or they're working already, they've got jobs and I'm stuck in this no man land, um, this music industry, which was pretty brutal back at the time. I had I had great fun, Liz, don't get me wrong. I got to sing at Paris Fashion Week and the Royal Albert Hall and it, with Alfie Bow and some amazing, incredible singers. But enrolling at university changed my life. It taught me that food is so much more than how you look. Well, you talk about your going back to university and, and studying and you have a huge range of very impressive qualifications. You've got degrees in nutrition and health, a master's in obesity. You have a master's degree in the risks and prevention of obesity, diplomas in sports nutrition, pre and postnatal nutrition. You're a master practitioner in eating disorders, accredited by the British Psychological Society, a level three personal trainer. I mean, you know, you have fantastic, I have to say, you don't look anything like old enough to have all those qualifications <laughs> but and it's it's fascinating to hear that you've got a personal story as well I think so often the experts who I love talking to and get the most out of are those who have walked that path before the people that they're now helping with in the future y- yes I, I mean when, when you reel it off like that I, I think it does sound it sounds like a lot and ironically Impressive. for me <laughs> thank you I'm <laughs> I am immensely proud of it because, as I said previously, I never dreamt in a million years I would be capable of doing a science degree, let alone the amount that I've um, pursued. But I think I got the bug to learn and I really discovered the power of education and then the challenge was applying it to others, which is why I went on to do the psychological side of training, because I discovered in my clinic that you can dish out the information, but unless you know how to talk to people and how to ask the right probing questions or how to really understand and be empathetic and to work with your clients on a level that's so much more than just telling them what to do, because nutrition is basically psychology and nutrition work together they work hand in hand i've i experienced that and i know that for everybody food is heavily psychological so it just made sense that i kept trying to learn as much as i could in the different areas of study that took my interest at the time and from that point onwards i think it's just enabled me to become a better nutritionist if i'm if i'm being honest and help me nurture now my um my clinicians that work within my clinic we have a unique approach to the nutrition clinic in how we work with our clients and i think that is what makes us successful is that we we do a 360 degree approach two things but learning never ends Liz as I'm sure you know you know we, it's forever. <laughs> no, I love it yeah I love it it's yeah you learn to the day we die and I love your podcast the food for thought podcast which does link those two very successfully and in fact your latest book covers the topic that we're going to talk about today which is the science of nutrition debunk the diet myths and learn how to eat well for health and happiness it seems so obvious but you know why do we need to debunk the diet myths Oh, well, um, I mean, this book was a dream project for me. Uh, it's, um, it's a Dawlins Kinsley published book, which growing up, I always used to have their encyclopedias. Yeah, I love and, them. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're visually so fantastic. And it was such an experience working with their art team in New Zealand at the time with the illustrations in lockdown. So we were all, all working remotely like we do now. But I think there was such a need for a book like this, because I think the general public are fed up with I mean, being lied to is a very big statement to make, but I I think 
dumbed down. I think people want to learn. They want the science explained in a way that's accessible and they want to know the why. The why is it this way? Okay, so you're saying carbohydrates aren't bad for me, but why? What is it that they do on a molecular level, like in the body? How do they help us create our serotonin or how do they help fuel our glycogen stores around our muscles for, you know, bursts of energy here and there? Superfoods, why are they marketed in a certain way? Why are they so expensive? And that's, do we really need them? So I think this book for me, was such a huge passion project. I felt so blessed that I was given the chance to write it because it covers every topic that you can even conceive to think about from childhood nutrition to the weight management aspects to the environmental impact of food. What what should we be eating for the future? Is vegan really healthier? What about our digestive system, gut health, which is a huge... um, Oh, yes. Yeah, huge topic at the moment. And we've got a lot about gut health in the book. We go through all the different areas. So I think it's the sort of book where you put it on the coffee table, you've got friends over and you're discussing something. There might be an argument about it. I know, let's pick up Rhiannon's book and the Hmm. answer will probably be there. (laughs) (laughs) I I want to talk to you about calories because there's a big debate going on at the moment, particularly on social media, that's anti-calorie. And, you know, for older people like me, I'm in my 50s, you know, we were brought up on calories and it was, well, you need to count your calories. And we all had little handy calorie counter, little guides, pocket guides that we carried around with us. And we'd look up, you know, how many calories were in the fruit salad that we were having or, you know, what was in the tin of beans that we just bought. You know, is weight loss really as simple as burning more calories or do you follow the school of thought that not all calories are created equal? It's such an interesting one because, of course, on a very basic level, of course, energy in, energy out makes sense. It's common sense that if you eat more than you burn, you will store that as excess body fat. However, where the calculation is flawed and actually in the clinic, we'll use calorie counting sometimes if it suits the client. But for the majority of our weight loss clients in the nutrition clinic, we don't actually calorie count and they achieve their results. So it's more about the quality of the food, because the calculation is 120 years old. And I mean, it's crazy. Really? Yeah, it's it's ancient. Yeah. And it's based on heating water to a certain degree and then how much energy you get from that heated equation. But anyway, I won't go into the science, but that's a bit boring, I think. But it's important for our listeners to understand that when you eat 100 calories of chocolate versus 100 calories of avocado, that they're going to be processed differently. You'll probably absorb all the calories from the chocolate and not the avocado because of the fiber content. Or mm-hmm. I think almonds, or if you want to say almonds, I don't know how you prefer to mm-hmm. pronounce your <laughs> almond or almond. Yes. Um, I think that that's a great example because if a bag says 100 calories, you're probably only going to use 70 calories of those because of the fat and fiber content. So it's how the food individually is broken down, which is why diet quality matters, because If calorie counting worked, Liz, we wouldn't have a problem like we do in society today where we do have, you know, we have a a larger uh, majority of the population being over a certain weight that's impacting their health. And perhaps that's, in my opinion, largely down to the food environment we live in 
and the amount of ultra processed foods. So foods where you absorb all the calories because they've all been broken down and manipulated and made to taste super delicious. Um, and you absorb all of the energy very quickly, whereas cooking from scratch, it's never going to taste the same as the burger that you buy from the fast food chain because you'd have a different role. You might have made that burger yourself. There might be some more fiber there within the food. The quality is different. Therefore, you don't absorb all the calories. So that's really fascinating. Yeah, that you're absolutely right. And I think that's the first time I've heard it explained in such a very simple way. And as a great lover of almonds or almonds, uh, I'm delighted that actually I'm, you know, because I think calories are just drilled into me. I mean, that's just kind of part of my DNA because of my age. So I'm delighted that actually, even if it says, you know, 100 calories on the packet, my body is absorbing less because of the fibre and the fat that's in there, which is obvious when you think about it. But I think so many of us just have grown up with, well, it says X number of calories, that must be true. Absolutely. And the calculation is 30% inaccurate anyway on the packet. What? Yeah. So, you know, the packet's just What is rough... the point? <laughs> and this is, this is the sad thing, Liz, is this is in the clinic. I see this all the time is that people have become so disillusioned with food in general because they have spent their life calorie counting and it's not worked because the calculation is not accurate. The principle makes sense. The principle isn't flawed. It's just, we don't, it's impossible to treat every unique body with a calculation that applied to everybody when food is so much more. It's about the bacteria within the food, the fiber, the constituents and how it works in your body. It just makes no sense. No, quite right. What are the things that do make sense then? I mean, what are the fundamentals, things like fiber? You mentioned the F word there, you know, presumably that is a fundamental. Oh, absolutely. Um, what makes sense is that we have bowel movements. So we poo frequently, regularly, and we have a, a healthy relationship with food, that we're nourishing the living bacteria within our gut that then sends signals and creates, our gut bacteria creates B vitamins. You know, our gut bacteria is very busy. It's talking to our brain all the time. It's sending messages constantly back and forth. It's not us controlling our hunger hormones, leptin and ghrelin that tell us when we're hungry and full. It's the signals from our stomach and the gut brain axis, which is a term that's thrown around a lot. But I remember being on before I go on stage or back in the day and always my digestion would go always I would be so nervous I would either feel sick or I'd need the toilet or you get that butterfly feeling in your stomach and it's because we've got this constant interaction subliminally between our brain and our stomach and and the diet that we eat is going to help the ratio of the good stuff basically that's going to control those signals and Gut health is a new emerging area with fiber, but fiber is also linked, you know, to a lower risk of type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, which is actually the biggest killer for women in the UK, which people don't really think of, think of females, but heart health, they, they think of men. Mainly that's because women are under researched compared to men as well, but fiber plays a huge role in our long-term health. I think diets often seen as short-term goals, whereas we should be thinking about aging as an aging population, how we mm -hmm. can enhance that process. And of course, fiber is more than just regulating bowel movements. Fiber is the very food that feeds our beneficial gut bacteria, doesn't it? It's, it's full fuel for our little friends in our gut. Absolutely. And 70% of the population get their fibre from carbohydrates. They don't eat enough fruit and veg anyway. Only 27% get their fibre a day. It's so low. 
And if diets, fad diets are telling people to cut out carbs, well, they're not getting any fiber within their diet because they're not eating the vegetables and fruit they should be eating either. So we've really lost sight on what the fundamental aspects of eating your fruit, your veg, your carbohydrates, your protein, your fats do for our body. It's like a wheel with lots of cogs. If you take one of the cogs out, something somewhere along the line is then going to have a knock-on effect on the next part of that wheel. And it's just not going to turn around efficiently. So it all sends signals to one another. And fiber also plays a role if you're looking at water retention with carbohydrates and um, obviously quality of, of our gut health in terms of bowel cancer and links to, you know, reducing risks down there as well. It, it's it's mm-hmm. It's so much bigger than um, people realise. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of weight loss, I'm interested that you talked about those two amazing hormones, leptin and ghrelin, which regular listeners may well have heard me talk about here before. Can you give us a brief overview on those for those who aren't familiar? Because I think we're hearing more, aren't we, about the role of leptin and ghrelin in the body? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people don't need to just think of the, of the, you know, the scientific words, but leptin is the hunger, is the hormone that tells you when you're full. And ghrelin, you could think of this angry gremlin. I kind of tell my clients it's ghrelin. It really is telling you growl. I want food now. It's, it's the hunger hormone. And when I did my master's degree in obesity risks and prevention, they were looking at dysregulation of these hormones. So what happens when you gain a lot of adipose tissue, which is where a lot of these hormones function and perform, it can dysregulate the whole cycle, which means you don't acknowledge that you're full and you can eat a lot more than you did previously. So there's a link between body fat percentages and hormonal function within our body and how efficient ghrelin and leptin are. And then there's the unique individual differences we have. You know, there's always that person that can have that extra slice of cake. And there's always that friend that just isn't fussed. There's a genetic level. And I remember speaking to Professor Giles Yo, who's a Cambridge. Um, oh, yes, we've had him as a guest. Yes, yeah. he is oh, a captivating speaker. And he explains this so much better than I do. And perhaps your listeners should go back and listen to that episode of Giles and really, really just engage in the fact that we have genetic differences. We are all unique, but our hunger hormones and our regulation does play a key role. And the types of food that we eat can impact these hormones differently as well. And then there's a link with the signals in our brain as well. So, Body fat percentage impacts hunger hormones. And we often find in the nutrition clinic that once we lose some body fat, um, I do refer to it as body fat, not weight. I find weight is a very confusing um, term because it's, again, not fully representative of what's going on. You look you look on the scales, it doesn't tell you water retention. And, sure. And muscle or, mass. I mean, I, I know yeah. that when I started lifting weights, not in a big way, just in a very small way and taking more exercise and going running, my body shape changed. I toned and I got smaller, but I also got heavier, which for me, having been brought up with calories and weight and diet height weight charts, I actually found quite distressing because I couldn't get over that psychological hurdle of, yes, but my scales are showing that I'm putting on weight rather than I've lost fat and I've gained muscle, which is heavier. I'm so glad you've shared that, Liz, because I think a lot of your listeners can probably relate to that. I know it's something that I hear daily and a lot of the time people aspire to be the lowest number they've ever seen on the scales in their life. 
And there's a big problem with that. It's immensely flawed because we're meant to get heavier as we age, which is also a difficult thing, I think, for people. Interesting. To, Why? Why are we yeah. meant to be heavier? I mean, there's lots of different theories. And in the book, um, if anybody has the science of nutrition, I explain one of those. It's called set point theory. And it's where our body is meant to optimally sit in terms of a weight range of around two to three kilos, often a fluctuation as to where we're less likely to fall sick or poorly, be free from disease, essentially, is, is the term that they use. And your body always wants to stay at that point. Now, as we age, we become more susceptible to getting ill. You know, we, we lose muscle mass, as you said, and that's why weight bearing exercise is so important as well. Risk of bone mass density increases of that depleting and things like osteoporosis are are rife in this country. But the reason that we want to be a bit heavier is because we want extra fat storage. You actually want that protection, cushioning of organs, and you want to have extra storage for times where you get poorly and you can't eat in times of famine. It's an evolutionary theory just as much yeah, as anything else. But to say when you're, say, 65, that you want to be the same weight you were when you were 19 isn't logical. And that's another reason the number is a is a psychological factor. Like you said, you said it was ingrained. You know, you've grown mm. up surrounded by it, all the messaging mm-hmm. everywhere. But it doesn't make it right. And that that's yeah, very hard for people to battle in their brain. Yeah. Is it possible to be healthily overweight? I mean, I'm using the term overweight. And by that, I guess I mean to have a, a, a high proportion of body fat compared to muscle. And this is where, again, that so I'm not a medic, I'm a nutritionist, but the medicinal world really focus on these cutoff points and the body mass index. So BMI, everyone probably will have heard of what's your BMI, you know, what's your height and your weight, and let's work it, work it out. Again, it is flawed. And I think the rugby player example is good. You know, you can be very heavy on the scales as a rugby player because of the muscle mass, you know, you can be very big but it doesn't make you unhealthy. Now, you can be healthier a variety of shapes and sizes. Some mm-hmm. people are healthier carrying more body fat than others. It's in the medical world where you get to a certain point that research says you're more likely to be susceptible to type 2 diabetes, um, basically metabolic diseases, obesity, and of course, heart disease with arteries being blocked with the more fat you may have circulating, you know, your body and more saturated fat you get in your diet, all these different components. But to answer your question really simply, uh, you can be healthier, a variety of shapes and sizes, Liz. And these numbers don't always mean everything. However, I'm not discounting the fact that if you if you do have too much weight that suits your body, that will put you at risk just as much as being underweight puts you at risk of poor health. Yeah. So it it is a variety. And talking about being underweight, before we take a break, I know that you do treat a lot of particularly young women with disordered eating in your clinic. And unfortunately, I think we've seen such a huge rise in that, hasn't, haven't we, as a result of the anxiety caused by the pandemic and the, the significant effects of lockdown on mental health. What's the state of play at the moment? Oh, it's absolutely heartbreaking. In, during lockdown, my clinic tripled. I just had my first son and I had to hire more dietitians that specialised in eating disorders at the time um, just to cope with the influx that we had. And already the NHS at the time had a waiting list of 3.5 years 
for people. What? To, yes, 3.5 years in some of the really under... even before the pandemic? Even that before the pandemic. just shocking, isn't it? That's a statistic from BEAT, if anybody wants the charity for eating disorders, B-E-A-T-E. Um, anyone wants to go and look into that. Because I remember going to Parliament and attending an event there that was trying to raise awareness by the charity beat for eating disorders. But there is a difference I must reiterate between disordered eating and eating disorder. And again, you can be any size and shape and have a diagnosed eating disorder. You don't just have to be underweight. You can be overweight. And it's it's just not. It's a psychological illness. And actually, again, there's a large proportion of such serious cases with eating disorders that can lead to death. And I think they're really overlooked. And sadly, there's just no funding there on the National Health Service for it. It's just not going that way. So yeah, if anybody wants to reach out, I'd recommend that charity. They're very good. You can even call a Samaritan helpline. You can, of course, if if you're in a position to do so, we can help at the nutrition clinic. But um, mm. you can get better. The positive can thing Can you is, really? I mean, yes. I, I just know it's notoriously hard dealing with significant disordered eating or eating disorders? It takes a team. You need psychological support. We have an in-house psychologist in in my clinic and you need a dietitian that specializes in eating disorders. Or if you're looking at disordered eating, you can work with a registered nutritionist like myself. And you'll need your GP to be on board because in some situations there will be medication or just to monitor your blood pressure and keep an eye on your stats, you know, your bloods and your, um, you know, your eye and that sort of thing. But it is possible it's more of a, a lot of the times we call it the voice. So a lot of people with eating disorders develop another voice where it takes over their rational voice and they can name, we often name it something in the clinic. I always say, name it someone you don't like, you know, years ago. Let's, let's <laughs> think of that person I could think of school. a few. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you just kind of question, you have this internal dialogue and you, you learn to talk back to that person you don't like in your head and you learn to shut it back. And that takes a lot of practice and time over the years. It may never disappear for some, but it becomes a very small, quiet voice rather than a loud, overbearing one. Um, and health-wise, you can definitely get your um, health status back. But there is, of course, damage that can't be reversed, like especially bone health for a lot of people. Mm. Well, we will talk about that. And it's good that there is a bit of light, hopefully, and some hope for many. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we're going to take a look at how it is possible to maintain a healthy weight for life. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, welcome back. And Rhiannon, we're having such a fascinating chat here about some of the biggest diet myths and why they need debunking. And there have been lots of questions that do come up very often in the Lazar Wellbeing community and post bag. So I'd love to just take a look at some of them and get your view. The first is, is it possible to maintain a healthy weight for life? Should it be a struggle or is it something that we can all achieve relatively straightforwardly? Oh, okay. So (laughs) there's no, there's no black or white. There's a lot of nuance as always. It depends on your privilege in the sense of the food environment, the relationships you maintain, the cooking skills you have and the education you have around food. I'd like to say yes, for the bulk of the population, it's totally possible, but those factors will often dictate your health. Do you mean cooking from scratch? You know, somebody who has access to fresh food and can actually make food rather than relying on packets? Yeah, and even knows how to cook because cooking is a skill that's dying out. I mean, people aren't cooking with kids like they used to anymore and convenience food is more popular and time in the evening, it's times of change. We don't sit at the dinner table anymore. So let's bring back that. If anyone's listening and you you have kids, please do some cooking with them. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was one of the plus points. There were very, very few uh, I could think about about lockdown. But one of the plus points for me was that I had all my kids that came home and we did take turns in cooking and we all sat together, possibly even twice a day and shared a meal, which was just so beneficial for our mental health and for the community. And we were very fortunate to be in a position to be able to do that. So yes, I think reconnecting with those basic skills. Okay, second question. Are superfoods actually super? All foods are super, Liz. All foods. All of them. Come on, sugar's not super. <laughs> well, maybe not sugar. Um, but, you know, why is broccoli not seen as a superfood compared to... Oh, I love um, broccoli. That exactly. should definitely be a superfood. Thank you. I agree. Rather than just labelling items like um, turmeric or turmeric again, have you want to pronounce that one? Yeah, um, or, and blueberries, um, acai, which blueberries. are great, but, you know, massively expensive. But equally, there are lots of dark coloured fruits and vegetables that contain polyphenols and these incredible antioxidants that are researched to protect the brain. So the research of blueberries is the shrinking of the area in the brain that stores memories. You've got to excuse my sleep deprived brain, but I think Mm. it's the hypothalamus (laughs) um, or the amygdala. 
but basically it protects this certain antioxidant in dark fruit. So there are lots of foods that can also do that. So blackberries are examples. And in the UK, we get so many of them. And so yeah, this time reasons. of year. And you can buy bags of them actually uh, frozen much, much cheaper. And I've also discovered, because I do love blueberries and my kids just eat their way through them, which, you know, it cost me a fortune. So what I decided to do was to buy freeze-dried blueberries and just one spoonful from a great big packet, you know, shoved into a smoothie or some yogurt gives me so much nutrition and, and kind of superfood power, if you like, at, at a fraction Absolutely. of the cost of the, the fresh ones. And they're just as good, aren't they? The freeze dried. Yeah. And, and also buy frozen items, you know, buy your frozen vegetables if you're on a budget and frozen fruit, because it's just, if, if not, it's more nutritious because it's frozen when it's picked. Whereas fresh fruit that sits on the shop shelves deteriorates a, a degree of, um, to oxidation and a degree of antioxidants deplete so yeah go for it frozen all the way and freeze dried and all these new types of storage and food it's great yeah bulk buying sharing with friends that kind of thing splitting up you know bulk purchases okay next question which i think hopefully we all have the answer to i certainly have a big view on that is fat bad for you the answer would be no we need all types of fat, but it's how much and what ratio you get it of. So reduce the saturated fat, but you still need it in your diet. I will reiterate, you know, cheese isn't as bad for you as they say. It's just the quantity you have and the quality of fats. Get loads of the Mediterranean stuff in you, those unsaturated fatty acids. Oh, I love olive oil. I love olive it. Olive oil. Yep. Live on it. Yes. I was actually yes. reading some research that was suggesting that the reason the Mediterranean diet is so successful is not necessarily because of the fruit and veg and the fish, which is obviously a huge part of it, but that they saturate everything in olive oil. I mean, it's just <laughs> soaked into virtually every dish they cook with. I know. It's fascinating, isn't it? All these different components and something that we feared for so long, these fats. But yeah, nuts, seeds, olive oil, even just eating the olives themselves, um, yes. you know, it definitely include those. So no, fat is good for you, not bad. Fat is our friend. Is breakfast really the most important meal of the day? So I'm going to be controversial here and still say for the bulk of people it is. However, Ooh. yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> However, the science and really... This goes on a psychological element in my experience in clinic rather than the fact that it's not important for everybody. I mean, some people aren't hungry. You don't have to force yourself to eat breakfast. It's not bad to skip it if it's not for you. But I will say that most people's dietary patterns and habits from childhood as they grow up includes having breakfast in the morning. And if you're able to do that, you're less likely for a lot of people to binge or overeat at lunch, dinner, and then opt for unhealthy snacks. So it's what fits for your lifestyle. And I do think the most most people we see do benefit from a bit of structure in their mm -hmm. diet. Well, you see, I skip breakfast. And that's, mm -hmm. I guess, only in the last few years, I've been doing that because I'm big into intermittent fasting and having and that, that long gap. if that works for you, then that's great for you. That's just it. Yeah, it is horses for courses, isn't it? It's working yeah. out what works for you. And I find it very difficult to eat early in the evening. So therefore, I need that gap. I find if I have a big meal, you know, in the evening, you know, realistically, I'm not physically hungry in the morning. I mean, I have conditioned myself, I guess, over the years to get up and, and have something. I also enjoy starting with fats rather than carbs. 
So rather than spiking my blood sugars with mm. cereal or toast, I now try and have eggs and things instead. What's your view on so that? This is the, I love this. Now, this research comes from Professor Tim Spector, um, who does a lot of this at King's College London, where he looks at individual blood sugar spikes um, when we consume different foods. And I think I remember attending a lecture of his and he said his wife ate a punnet of grapes and he ate a punnet of grapes and they had hardly any impact on his wife. But to him, it sent his blood sugars through the roof. And it goes to show show that we are unique. There is no one size that fits all. And, you know, it could be that you're predisposed, Liz, to having a higher fat percentage in your diet and a lower carbohydrate one, whereas other people will need the higher carbohydrate and the lower fat. And it's trial and error with how you feel. And if you're lucky enough to be able to have your blood levels taken, or I should say, if you're diabetic, you definitely would know and you'd monitor what impacts you. But with the fasting note, I'll also add, would you fast your children? And there's these elements here, you know, this is some kids just are not hungry. Most of them need something to eat to start the day off with energy. So really think of diet as unique to everybody. Mm. And interesting that you talk about blood glucose monitors because they seem to be popping up all over the place now and there are a lot of home monitors that you can get. I was having lunch, in fact, with a friend just the other day and she had a little bulge on her arm and her sleeve and I said, are you wearing a blood glucose monitor? And she said, yes, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm learning so much about the things that spike my blood and the things that don't. You know, a bowl of oats for her spikes her blood sugar, whereas, you know, for her other half, it doesn't. So it's, as you say, I think diet and dietary advice is becoming more personalized, isn't it? Absolutely. And just a word of caution, though, when we do take it upon ourselves without having someone to explain those results to you, it could then impact the choices you make, not always for the best. So for instance, your friend could perhaps eat oats if she combined them with some nuts and seeds for breakfast, and that would then impact the blood sugar in a different way again. And sometimes her insulin and her pancreas can deal with that amount of sugar. So it doesn't mean she should avoid it all the time. So I think it's how we interpret the information just as much as the access we now have to it. It's um, Mm. it's a big minefield. (laughs) Sure. And what about all these free from foods? Because you walk into any supermarket and there are these aisles now, they just seem to be growing longer and longer and longer with food industry made products, you know, shouting gluten free, lactose free, dairy free, whatever. You know, so many of us now seem to be on some kind of free from diet. Every time you go out to eat, if you, you know, if you're out in a restaurant, the first question is, you know, what are your food allergies? what are your food intolerances? I don't remember ever being asked that question back in the day. No. And, you know, it's it's brilliant. There's awareness, especially if you have an allergy, which is sure. life-threatening. I mean, thank goodness there are products. Um, however, you know, it, it, it's not healthier for everybody to suddenly go lactose-free or gluten-free. Again, it's almost become trendy to follow a free from diet, which is wrong. These choices are there for people that really can't, you know, consume these items within their diet. And the sad thing is the food manufacturing industry mark up the price point a lot of the time. So it's like you're paying more money to have an item taken out and often an item, I mean, gluten's a protein, for instance, and it's replaced with a lot of other elements that are even more difficult to digest for a lot of people and they don't realise what they're consuming. So... That's my view on free from. It's expensive, a necessity for some, but not for all. Mm. Vegan diets, always healthier? No. (laughs) 
in a word. <laughs> I'd agree with you with that. I mean, I quite like just to move on from that park at there, yeah, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and again, it just seems to be, you know, very much dominated by ultra processed foods and, Absolutely. and poor choices of fats and lack of yeah. certain yeah. minerals. And I guess sometimes I'd be interested to hear your view on this. I mean, I, I've got friends who've had daughters particularly who have become very excluding in their diets and whether it's free from or they've become, you know, vegan or whatever. And it's actually been a cover for some kind of disordered eating. It's sort of almost been a convenient way of avoiding eating by saying, well, I can't eat that because, you know, I'm allergic or I'm sensitive to this or, you know, do you, word, do you see that, um, do you see that in, in, in the clinic? Yeah, I'm glad you used the word sensitive because it's actually, it's a really sensitive emotive issue, isn't it? Definitely. Yes. Dietary choices can be ethical. They can be for the environment, of course, um, sustainability, but it's hard to decipher. And as a parent, I can only imagine if you're seeing your child, you don't want to discount their beliefs, but at the same time, it can often be a mask. We see it all the time. And I'm not saying veganism is bad. It can be very healthy if it's done correctly with the right supplementation, the right dietary choice. It is a good one for some people. However, often it does act as an easy way of restriction. And especially somebody could say they're lactose free because they want to avoid all types of saturated fat when they're out and about um, from dairy products deliberately. We see it all the time. It it does act as a mask. Yes. So be very wary of that if anybody is... um, knows anyone in that situation. Mm. And then what about yo-yo dieting? We've talked about diets that work and don't work and people who go on to fads. And, you know, I remember back in the day, you know, being on the, I don't know, the egg and grapefruit diet and all, all these sorts <laughs> of weird things long before your time. What are the dangers of this so-called yo-yo dieting? Does it really mess up our metabolism or can we afford to dip in and out of these strange, weird and wonderful things? So, Depending on your starting weight, in research on obese individuals, if you embark upon a quick fad diet, it could kickstart long-term weight. However, if you are of a healthy weight to begin with, or what I'd say is not carrying a lot of excess fat, and you embark upon a fad diet, then another one, then another one, then another one, you're going up, down, up, down. It's it's horrendous because your hormones don't know what they're doing. And you're, I use the example of bubble wrap when you're looking at fat. So you don't ever lose fat cells. You've got them for life. You can't just shrink them and suddenly they're gone. It's like popping bubble wrap. The minute you restrict and you go on a diet, you're popping the bubbles. But the problem is when you then eat normally again, you're inflating them so quickly that they're dividing into two and the mother oh, cell what? makes two. Yeah. So then you, you make more body fat. Do you end up twice as fat? Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's yes, essentially, That's really twice bad as much news. body fat. And it really is up to you to keep those bubbles deflated with lifestyle choices rather than inflating them again and dividing them to create more cells. Because that's nature, that's evolution. It's saying, oh, I don't ever want to lose this again. I'm now going to create two fat cells because you lost the one originally. We're going to store it really fast this time and make it even more difficult to drop the weight the next time. So before we go, can you give me a little kind of snapshot of what your day on a plate would look like? What sort of things do you always make sure? I know that every day is different and I know that you're breastfeeding, so you're probably overloading with all sorts of extra nutritious things. But what are the the sorts of principles that you and your team would adopt on a daily basis? Absolutely. I'm so happy to share the principles and I'm glad you phrased it like that because I'll never, I don't like to disclose exactly what I eat in a day because I feel it's not fair. You know, people think, oh, she's a nutritionist. 
yeah, she's a nutritionist. She must, this must be for everyone. And it, yes. it's not, it's really not. And I'm not perfect. I mean, as you said, you know, I currently breastfeeding. My hormones are all over the place. I'm sleep deprived. I am eating probably more chocolate than I used to. And I'm just going to be honest about that fact. I love a balanced meal, Liz. I will always have my carbohydrates, my vegetables on the same plate together with a good amount of protein. But I, I do prefer a predominantly plant-based diet. I do try and get a lot of pulses in my diet legumes. I, I'm a big fan of um, lentils and beans. And I just think they're so easy to throw into so mm-hmm. many different dishes. They bulk it out. It makes Yeah, economic cooking. too. Yeah. It, and actually the quality of animal produce these days has deteriorated a little bit. But, it, you know, I think it's important if you don't eat fish that you get your healthy fats and you know where they're coming from at your meals or you know what supplements to replace things with. So I'm a fan of a balanced plate, essentially getting all your food groups in at each meal. For me, that works. That's how my body ticks. And it might not be for all, but that's what I do. A lot of water, so Mm -hmm. much water at the moment. I'm thirsty all the time. Oh, I could just sit there and and it's amazing. And I say this to my clients because the stat we have is the average person in Britain drinks one glass of water a day. One. No, you're joking. Isn't that awful? And it impacts our concentration, our um, our ability to feel happy, or our, our every everything, our performance. Gosh, so once you amazing. drink the water, you can't yeah. go back because you start to notice how much your body needs it, and then you notice you feel thirstier, having even more water than you did before. And I just, I'm a regular eater as well. I'm, fasting doesn't work for me. It's just the way my body is. So I did try it out of interest and realized that I, I'm a thriver off a lovely bowl of porridge in the morning. That is, that is me. Although I do like it when my hubby does make me eggs for breakfast. I, I'm a big fan of that. Mm, excellent. Well, I think our bodies are as unique as our personalities. I know that's something that you've yeah. said before. And yes. And- it's something to be recognised and it, it is confusing and trying to work out exactly what works is is hard. But your work and your book and your website just helps to make it that bit easier. And how do we contact you? How can people, you know, stay in touch and learn more about your work and follow you? Oh, well, thank you, Liz, first of all, for letting me have a chat with you about it and sharing it, because I think it's so important to be transparent that there's no one size fits all. And that's my favorite saying, we're as unique as our personality. So if anybody wants to, you know, get some support, then they, of course they can contact the Retrition Clinic and Retrition, it's just my name, Rhiannon, merged with the word nutrition. So R-H-I, Trition. It's the same on every social channel, Instagram, Twitter. I mean, I'm now on TikTok, Liz. Can you believe it? That's my. So um, am I. I, I. I will follow you <laughs> well, on TikTok. Well, my, my team, I have to say, they do repost some of my reels and things on on TikTok, which yeah, is a rather terrifying brilliant. thought. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, this this is just it. And of course, I, I should obviously say I've got it. I've got my my book, um, the new book. I've deliciously healthy pregnancies out September the eighth, which is for for any eighty recipes in there. So yeah, you can find me in lots of different places in the clinic. Wonderful. Well, we shall all be following you. And Rhiannon, thank you so much for being with us and sharing so much and all the very, very best with your newborn. It's just been lovely to chat. Well, thank you for having me. You're such an inspiration, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. 
And that was Rhiannon Lambert. Thank you so much. Such a big subject. And I know it concerns so many of us that I meet and I hear from literally on a daily basis. So I really hope that we have helped to give a little bit of an insight into the science behind weight management. That is it for this episode. As always, you will find more information with links and resources over on lazarwellbeing.com. There you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter, absolutely jam-packed with plenty of tips for living well good weight management tips as well and of course don't forget for more advice research articles and recipes there is our bi-monthly magazine Lizelle Wellbeing and you can subscribe to that again the links are on LizelleWellbeing.com if you'd like to get in touch you can find me on social media that's at Lizelle Me or you can contact the team at Lizelle Wellbeing thank you for listening until the next time go well bye bye the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is a Fresh Air production. With grateful thanks to my producers, Ellie Smith, Sarah Moore, and Emma Crampton. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.